On this week's episode of the podcast, I want to challenge you to look at something a little differently. We all understand risk and we understand crisis communications, but have you given much thought to risk communication? Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 89 of the Resilient Journey podcast, presented by the Resilience Think Tank. I'm your host, Mark Hoffman, and this week I'm joined by an expert in strategic communications and crisis management, Oliver Schmidt. Oliver is president and CEO of a company called C4CS. In this week's episode, Oliver and I discuss how management's view of a crisis might be analytical, but the public's view of that same crisis is emotional. Oliver will walk us through his six rules for effective risk communication, and it's worth the listen. The Resilient Journey podcast is a Resilience Think Tank production. Oliver, welcome to the podcast. I'm happy to have you here. We've been talking about doing this for a while, and we finally got our schedules aligned. So let's start with you introducing yourself and then also telling everybody about the organization C4CS. Well, first of all, Mark, thank you very much for having me. Uh, I too am glad that we're having the the uh, the time that we found that on our calendars to get together. <laughs> really appreciate it, and I also appreciate the opportunity to share information concerning uh, C4CS and then the things that we do with you and those who follow your podcast. So, thanks very much for that. Sure. As for C4CS, we're actually celebrating 25 years in business this year. So for us, uh, a little bit of a milestone. We were founded in Charlotte, North Carolina in 1998 and have since grown into a company that has associates in Pittsburgh. That's that's where we're headquartered, uh, a number of people here. Uh, we also still have an office in Charlotte, North Carolina. We have associates in Chicago, in New York City. Uh, we also have representation in Europe. So we are a, a larger entity at this point, but we're still sticking to sort of the mantra that came out of the early days. We have been specializing since day one in strategic communication and crisis management. And in that, we have differed immensely from, let's just say what else is out there. And mm -hmm. uh, give you an example. We have clients that have told us across industries, um, we have been looking for a company that combines expertise in the area of strategic communication, sometimes referred to as public relations. We don't like that moniker very much, but let's just go with uh, strategic communication here. And then also profound knowledge expertise in the area of crisis management. And where yeah. those two disciplines overlap, there is a great need. And that doesn't just include corporations. We work with government agencies. We've worked with uh, very large nonprofits, you name it. Um, before I move off of this, I want to ask you why you don't particularly like the moniker of public relations firm. Um, good question, Mark. I, I appreciate it. We have found over, I mentioned earlier, 25 years in business now as C4CS, and my, my uh, career spans roughly 30 years now. Uh, my colleagues and I have found over, over the years that when we build ourselves as public relations consultants, we ultimately do not have access to the boardroom in a lot of cases. We do oh, not wow. have access to... Uh, upper echelon, if you will, of uh, hierarchies within organizations across the board. And here's why. 
public relations has to this day, unfortunately, uh, a negative connotation. Uh, some people are out there who say, well, you're just wordsmithing and you are playing with people's minds and all that. And then all mm -hmm. of those uh all of those notions don't really help us. When we refer to ourselves as consultants, management consultants, we do not refer to ourselves as public relations consultants, but management consultants, another big difference, right? Sure. Then we, we do have the ear of, of upper management. I, I want to shift out of this a little bit because I know sure. what you guys do is a lot around crisis management and crisis comms. But one area that's extremely important too is risk communication. I had never even heard the phrase risk communication before. So talk about those services a little bit. Yes. And I, I, I think it's great to, to get this question from you because risk communication, while being extremely important, and we work on risk communication related tasks almost on a daily basis for a great variety of clients, oftentimes sort of falls off the cliff a little bit because our clients are very focused on these areas that we already discussed, crisis management, crisis communication. But when you tell them that uh, the, the phase they're in, the pre-crisis phase where they're monitoring a specific issue, and there's also issues management as yet again, a separate discipline, that's not really a crisis. Therefore, what we do is we then uh, tell them, you know, we might want to talk here about risk communication with you, which we are not uh, advertising as much as, as some of the other disciplines that we represent. Mm -hmm. But we certainly also have it on our website with some information. And you may have looked at that, Mark. Um, and and it's, it's a discipline that's very dear to me because I think that companies that discover risk communication as a viable tool to improve their stakeholder relationships will ultimately have an impact on their bottom line that can be critical, that can be very significant. And I fully remember conversations with, well, for instance, CFOs, right? So uh, people who are more focused on the numbers and what, what are you bringing to the table in terms of the value add and so forth. And uh, once they were able to fully grasp what risk communication meant and how it could really improve the company's financial or financial performance, they were all in. They were saying, like, tell us more about this. And we need we need mm. more training and we need more consulting, especially so, Mark, and this doesn't come as a big surprise in what we refer to as more sensitive industries. So we're talking chemical industry, manufacturing as a whole, maybe then energy, obviously. Uh, we've done a lot of work with oil and gas, uh, as well as nuclear energy, for instance. So those those are industries where risk communication plays a huge role. Yeah? And we typically talk to, um, that's that may be of interest to, to your listeners, we, we typically talk to not so much a, a communications department uh, within the organization that we're working with. We're talking to risk management. We're talking to those who run finance. We're talking to maybe HR, other folks, and then obviously C-level across the board, because those are all things when, when we're discussing risk management, insurance, and so forth, that, again, have certainly to do with communication. That's why it's called risk communication. But it's much, much more in terms of who needs to be at the table to to discuss all of these things. Now, let, so let, me that's I, let, mm -hmm. let me see if I can... Put this in context here a little bit. So uh, tell me if this is what you mean by risk communication. So <clears throat> some time ago, I had a client 
and we had come across a particular situation where uh, a very large percentage, almost half, of their servers that they were running were about to come up to end of life, right? So they would have not had uh, any more patching, no more updates, things right. like that. And it's a significant percentage of, of their data center was about to go beyond end of life. And I mentioned it in a risk report to the global management team, mm-hmm. and it landed like a with a thud, like nobody seemed to care, didn't generate <laughs> any interest, and I didn't understand it. Um, so I walked away from that wondering which one of us <laughs> wasn't doing our job. Were they completely, you know, asleep at the switch by not paying attention to what I was saying, or right. was it? I wasn't communicating effectively. Is that what you're talking about here about risk communication and yes, being effective absolutely. at it? So again, it ties heavily into risk management, and I would argue that the scenario you just shared, Mark, certainly has to be uh, <laughs> has to be given a red flag type alert uh, because that is a, a an event which can already be predicted and foreseen that will certainly have a big impact on the company's performance, right? If you all of a sudden have your server capacity go down and you didn't mention a percentage, but let's just say it's significant, then you need to have the proper planning in place, right? You need to go through a process that will, at the end of it, you will hopefully be able to mitigate that impact. Uh, What we're talking about in crisis, right? You wanna control the situation and so forth contain control. And uh, if that is not identified as a potential threat or risk, first of all, then that might have detrimental consequences. So I would definitely say that as far as risk management and then also risk communication is concerned, this is something that has to be addressed. And uh, interestingly, you already engaged in risk communication, Mark, because you alerted parties within the organization to the pending problem. At this point, it was just in terms of the terminology, an issue, something that we would describe as an issue, something that as a topic has a is of strategic relevance to the organization. And if it develops in the wrong direction, it can become a crisis, it can develop into a crisis. And that's what we want to avoid, right? We need to we need to do what we can in order to prevent. And that's part of the pre-crisis phase. Not only do we want to anticipate what could potentially go wrong, we also want to then put the proper steps in place in order to prevent things from happening. Now, let me let me jump in here because I want to just encourage my colleagues in the resilience world to realize why, if, if you haven't figured it out, why you need to care about things like this because risks and threats, particularly ones that could result in a significant disruption, could result in a business continuity event, could result in a crisis event. If you know about those things ahead of time, or as some people like to use the phrase left of boom, then you can be more prepared for the response to those things for if and when they do happen. And those things matter. Get in front of it. Be prepared with it and, uh, you know, for it. And it's, um, it, it really changes the dynamic of the resilience professional instead of being, uh, let's see how fast we can recover to let's be as prepared as possible. And, and it makes you much more resilient, really, rather than, than being focused on just a recovery. You have 
six steps or six rules for effective communication. Do you want to walk us through what those are and maybe just take like uh, a minute or so for each one? Sure. I, I'll be happy to, Mark. And I, I I also want to say that what you just shared with, with the listeners is, is exactly how we see the world. Mm. I, I almost, uh, I'm almost ready to say, and we do tell our clients this, that it's our fiduciary responsibility as consultants that have in many cases worked with organizations for 10 years or even, even longer, that we understand that it's not about advising a client in regards to how to best respond to a crisis without putting a foot forward specifically in the area of prevention. I, I said it earlier, the pre-crisis phase by definition means we want to anticipate what could potentially happen and then do our scenario planning and the training, the plan writing and all of that. But we also want to and have to do everything we can in order to prevent things from happening, yeah, which exactly. is all about putting the right steps in place. Certainly, a BCP is a great idea. But what it does is it tells the client, it tells everyone involved in the response to an adversarial event what to do once that has already happened. It's a whole lot smarter to work on the front end and say, okay, here are things we have already identified that could go wrong. Why not now focus heavily on what we can do in order to prevent X and Y and Z from happening in the first place? Yeah. Um, but you asked me, Mark, and I, I, I think that's uh, that, that's good to, to share these six rules, if you will, for effective risk communication. We also have those on, on our website and uh, regularly talk to clients about it. First of all, and this is where where things are really uh, uh, different. And I want to, maybe if you allow me to sort of get started a little bit before uh, the, the uh, thought process regarding those st six steps really starts. First of all, I would like to make clear that there's a fundamental difference in regards to how management as a whole typically looks at a particular risk or even at a crisis compared to, let's just say, the general public. And the way we describe this is typically using the following uh, terminology. Management's view on a risk is analytical. They, as a general rule, or at least as a tendency, look at numbers. What's the likelihood of something happening? Sure. That's right. Research sure. results. How dangerous, if you want to use that word, is that really? Going back to the definition for risk, we would look at hazard, right? And how probable is it that that hazard is actually going to develop into a risk event and therefore a crisis potentially? Mm -hmm. Now, let's contrast that with how the general public and those affected by a particular risk event would view things. Let's just say you do have an incident. It could be a transportation incident and there is a chemical spill. You and the listeners would probably uh, be able to, to uh, agree that if you were a resident in this particular area where this chemical has now spilled and somebody tells you you can no longer use your well water, your potable water source has been lost. Would you agree with me? And it's a rhetorical question that those people are going to have a fundamentally different response that 
from from those within management circles, right? For them, it's not just a numbers game probability because they are at this moment in time actually hit by this particular problem. Therefore, their response is one that we describe as emotional, not analytical. It's emotional. And there uh, we have terminology such as stakeholder outrage that enters the discussion, where responses that are guided by emotions are no longer what management might say, well, these people are just nuts. And then I come in and say, put yourself in their shoes right now. Sure. Takes me back to uh, Tony Haywood back when uh, uh, Deepwater Horizon happened, saying sure. that uh, he hasn't had enough sleep uh, and whatever else he might have said. Right? It's about how the people who are impacted directly by what has happened see the world, and it is the perception that counts. So this is the fundamental difference, and I, I wanted to touch on that before I talk about these these six rules for effective risk communication, Mark. So that's brilliant, um, and, and yeah. you're you're spot on to talk about the difference in the response to that. And mm -hmm. um, I think a lot of times this analytical response, particularly around probability, can be very detrimental to management when they start even considering whether they even want to work on or address Correct. or potentially mitigate a potential risk. So let's see if we can go ahead and get through yes, these me, six rules me, of communication. Yep, yep. So the first one is accept and involve all stakeholders as legitimate partners. There's sometimes a tendency within management to sort of uh, say, well, these stakeholders are not important. And I shudder when I hear uh, employees mentioned, <laughs> for instance, amongst the sure. stakeholders that are not important because I tell them these are your your uh, your allies. These are the folks that are out there in the community that speak on your behalf. And if they tell others, well, I don't have a clue what's going on, then that's not good for you. Not good uh, on any level. So a quick follow up to that. Do you recommend yep. to your clients that they do stakeholder analysis sessions? Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. Stakeholder right. analysis down to, down to uh, there is uh, an aspect I haven't mentioned yet, monitoring of online content. You want to be aware of stakeholders that have an, an agenda that is not in line with yours. You want to know whether they're protesters, friends of the earth, I mean, you, you name it, yeah. Greenpeace and so forth. And you want to understand what it is that they're thinking and doing. You need to look for attitudinal change and behavioral change in all of your stakeholders. And how are you going to influence stakeholder opinion at the end of the day by communicating and acting in a certain way? And right. without and the communication, you can... You can do whatever you want if it's not known by your stakeholders that you are taking specific steps to remedy a situation, to make it easier for them to go about their lives or whatever it may be. If you fail as far as communication is concerned, we have seen this over and over again over that 25-year period for our company, mm -hmm. then you as a company may respond beautifully from an operational point of view. But the communication is lacking, and therefore you are it, it, you're potentially even creating a separate crisis in addition to what you had as the original problem, whatever and that you, may have been. And your second rule is to listen, listen to your to stakeholders your in that two-way exactly. communication. Yeah. So it's all about it's all about understanding what their concerns are and how are you going to find out if unless unless you listen very carefully. Right. So management sometimes has a tendency to say, well, we know what their problems are because we know what we've caused. And I say, how, how do you know? Everybody's affected in a different way. 
right? So we need to go out there and really do intelligence, intelligence gathering and understand how they're impacted on an individual basis in order to then be able to fix it, which you have to do as far as the individual impact is concerned. You can't just have a blanket over sending you a pizza and then everything is great because we have sent pizza to a hundred families in this area or whatever. That's nonsense. That's That may actually back, backfire big time, right? So listening and then, as you said, uh, Mark, two-way communication. You can only... You can only fix this by listening carefully and then communicating back. And it has to be that that constant exchange of information in order to get things done. And that is unfortunately not happening across stakeholders. It's unfortunately not happening continuously. And that's what derails a lot of crisis response work uh, as as we have seen. I, I, I would easily be able to say dozens of times where, where it really went subpar and sometimes it was disastrous, the response. You know? and, and then the third rule really talks about the attitude of the communicator, right? Being correct upfront about that. Go ahead and talk. Yeah, about that. You, you have to be honest, frank and open, right? So truthfulness uh, to the degree that you can provide information. Obviously, if your attorney tells you that's proprietary and that cannot be shared at this time. And I would be the last one to say, oh, but we have to share it. That's not, the, I mean, especially in the U.S., it's a litigious society, sure. uh, unmatched anywhere around the world, the number of attorneys and the importance in terms of liability and so forth. Uh, so we do need to adhere to those those uh, guiding uh, lessons, if you will. But we do need to understand that we have to be open, truthful, forthcoming in order to have that productive two-way communication in place because if we come across as as someone who cannot be believed as someone who is not a reliable source of information then again we lose out we're, we're shooting ourselves in the foot yeah. everything downstream after that falls apart absolutely absolutely Completely. yeah whatever you say has to hold up to fact checking that doesn't mean you have to say everything you know but everything you say does have to be uh you know like you said, honest and yeah, and, and you need to correct yourself. If you find out half an hour later that what you just said was actually wrong, you have new information on hand that you need to you need to say that you need to get that information out there. Yeah. Right, and then you you talk about sources here too. Talk about uh, mm -hmm. rule number four. Yeah, so coordinating, collabor collaborating with credible sources is is absolutely critical. Just a quick example, if, if you are a company and you are now hiring a third party to investigate, but it turns out that the third party is actually associated <laughs> with you and you've been paying them a lot of money for doing other research on your behalf, then that's not an independent third party. And right. I, I mean, if you we used the example of potable water earlier, right? So you obviously do need to do testing and in order to make things right you need to see that the the water quality is improving but if you hire uh, an outfit that has been working with you uh, over a period of a decade or whatever and they've been basically doing your bidding because you have filled their coffers with with lots of money then that's not going to fly and even though your intent may be everything may be very well reasoned and the company wants to do good work. It's the perception that counts, as we said earlier, Mark, right? The, so uh, The perfect example of a credible source here would be the offering of credit monitoring uh, after a data breach. It, 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 exactly. It, if you have a breach, absolutely. And it's yep. happening. I mean, in the early days, I, I remember being involved in cybersecurity related 
related responses in the early days and even credit monitoring was discussed by management. Is this really necessary, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're way past that, where that's kind of an automatic these days, right? So mm -hmm. everybody understands, but it's, it's, a, it's an evolution in that area too. Absolutely. I'm concerned about rule five because I'm afraid the time's going to get away from us on this yeah. one. And Meet the needs of traditional and social media is, is our fifth rule mark. And yeah. It's, yeah, it's that. critical to understand that, again, we combine crisis management with crisis communication. If you do not fully understand that social media has fundamentally changed the mm. game in terms of communication, then you lose right out of the gate. Right. So that's why it's so critical to monitor the Internet and social media content as well as traditional media content. 24-7 every single day of the year. And we do this for a ton of companies during peacetime, if you will. And then it obviously ramps up if there is an incident, if there is something that we need to that we need to uh, follow more closely. And it's about understanding what's happening on Reddit, on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, even and so forth. And that's sometimes difficult because some of those social media tools make it more difficult, but it has to happen, right? So understanding, and we have understood for a long time how traditional media work, Things have changed because they now obviously have an online presence. They have any number of social media channels and even ask their viewers or listeners uh, when we're talking about broadcast. Well, if you have seen or heard anything regarding this particular incident, you can call this number and then they might even end up on the six o'clock news because they have pertinent information. Right. So the media are seeking this information, utilizing social media. And somebody may very well have uh, a snapshot, a video of, of something that was visible, a plume in the air, or you name it, right? So again, that has changed and meeting the needs of, of traditional and social media now means that we have to work with them. We can't ignore them. We need to adhere to deadlines, we need to adhere to how they work. And for social media, it's no longer an editor or a publisher that have certain ethical standards and codes right. that they abide by. No, it's the individual out there, the citizen journalist who can basically put up whatever they want. And sometimes also with uh, a questionable intent, unfortunately, Mark. Right? Yeah, that's so right. We need to we need to say that, too. And there we have to we have to know how all of this works. We have to know that Internet social media is long lasting. It does not know any borders. It's around the world within a second and or less. And it is used by those that are potentially right now thinking about how can we harm this particular organization. And that leads right to your your final rule, which is speaking clearly and with compassion. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I believe I might have mentioned speaking clearly and, and compassionately already. If you are not seen as the credible conversation partner, a party that is actively trying to fix things, working with you collaboratively, and we mentioned this unfortunate train, train derailment earlier, right? So it's a yep. very, very large company that's behind that. And uh, when the CEO was interviewed, and including on the Hill, there was a lot of not answering the questions, right? And that goes back to having been advised by attorneys in a certain way. But again, we need to find the middle ground. We need to do right by those who have been impacted. And all that is a whole lot easier as many companies that we've worked with, Mark, over the over the years can, can attest to. It's a whole lot easier if we understand about risk management 
And if we understand about risk communication and adhere to the rules that I uh, just just discussed with you. All right, Oliver, we're way out of time here. Uh, interesting stuff, though, and and uh, a lot of good value from you and from C4CS. How can people connect with you? Yeah, I, I I can be reached by email. That's the easiest, probably. That that would be Schmidt at c4cs.com. And you can find me on LinkedIn. If you look up Oliver S. Schmidt and C4CS, we also have a, a company LinkedIn page. Um, I'm always uh, uh, open to uh, receiving messages via LinkedIn and then connecting with people and what well, you and I are connected, Mark. So that, yeah. that's a viable that's a viable path, obviously. No, that, that works. And you have a very good profile on LinkedIn, too. I was looking at it and I was quite impressed by it. So, Oliver, thanks for the time. Thanks for all of the insight on this. And uh, we'll talk again soon. Thank you so much, Mark. Really appreciate it. I want to thank Oliver Schmidt for being my guest this week and talking to us about risk communication and the perspective that he had to share with us was very interesting. I want to remind you that the Resilient Journey is a Resilience Think Tank production. Next week, another great guest as I'm joined by powerhouse speaker and ex-professional athlete David Lindsay. David and I are going to talk about the leadership mindset and strategies for building resilient and high-performance teams. So join us, won't you, as we continue our resilient journey.